Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. My guest today is Nigel, the chair of Barclays and ex-CEO of Rothschild, where he spent almost his entire career. Nigel is incredibly smart and clearly hugely successful. But what I'm most impressed by are his behaviors. He's kind and caring, generous and humble, and never conflates skill and luck. In this episode, Nigel and I will speak about how he transitioned from doing the work to empowering others and becoming the first non-family CEO of Rothschild after 200 years, how leadership comes in all kinds of forms and shapes, and how he thinks about today's equity markets. Nigel, before we go into your absolutely incredible career, spending 27 years at Rothschild in investment banking and being the first non-family CEO, I would love to talk about where you actually grew up. Sure. Um, first of all, let's start with a confession. It was 37 years. I'm not 50, but I'm 60. How I lasted that long, I'm not quite sure. I grew up in relatively conventional circumstances in South London on the border between uh, a leafy suburb called Blackheath and Lewisham, which was not, not so leafy, and lived there for 18 years until my university days. And how was it like to grow up there? That's a really interesting question. You know, at what point in your life do you be, become conscious of your, of your surroundings? Um, it was unreal in the sense that it's like a lot of um, central-ish London, relatively distant from some of the more deprived areas of the country. So I guess it was a little bit of an oasis. And as you go through your teens, you're more aware of what the rest of the of the country is like. And I was very lucky. I was in a, in a functioning and caring family. Too. So it was a, it was a good, hardworking childhood. How have your parents influenced you? Um, for example, I mean, you clearly have incredible work ethics, and you just said hardworking childhood. Um, is that what you learned from your parents? I think so. Um, I think I probably learned it without them drumming it into me, which is a lesson that, as a parent myself, I probably wish I'd absorbed a bit earlier both my parents were the first members in their families to go to university in the days where back in the 1950s you by and large could only go to university if you didn't come from a well-off background if you got some kind of scholarship because otherwise the state didn't pay and to do that you had to work really really hard 
And as I say, although my parents didn't uh, bang on about this a lot, I think both my brother and I were incredibly conscious that they had worked very, very hard to get to university and then worked hard in their respective jobs afterwards. So it was a great example. What did you then study? It's slightly laughable nowadays. And most of my friends and acquaintances from at least outside Britain don't really understand how you can go into banking having read history at university. <laughs> and um, But, you know, this is one of the strengths and some people think weaknesses, but I think strengths of the uh, UK education system that you can do subjects which arguably train the mind but don't prepare you for anything vocational and you know when I was leaving university the historians broke down into sort of three categories I suppose um, simplistically those who were going to stay on and, and study the subject those who had big personalities and were going to go into marketing and were applying for jobs at companies like Mars and Unilever and those who mostly knew nothing about the city but were going to apply for jobs in the city because that's kind of what people did and I was in the last category. <laughs> I, I just want to touch up on the point you just made. When I joined Rothschild, I actually joined in the London office and I hadn't lived in the UK ever before and I studied business but I taught statistics um, and I was a very math-driven graduate. And to my huge surprise, I think I was one of the few people who had actually studied business. Whereas in Germany and the US where I lived before, everyone going into banking had this, this STEM uh, background. So I found it quite confusing in the beginning because I was taught how to do IRR calculations in my head and no one else knew what an IRR is. But then over time, I appreciated that banking is a lot more about relationship building and so on. And I, I kind of appreciated the more creative side, I guess, but it did come as a surprise. I suspect that in your time at Rothschilds, um, you never had to do any maths. Fairly basic. One of the, the biggest opportunities I had early on was that uh, due to refurbishments, I got to sit to, next to my managing director and I was the junior analyst. So it was quite fun from an exposure perspective. And since I was the only person who did math at university, I was the one running kind of the black and golds um, option model and kind of the more complicated stuff like pricing convertible bonds. So I got put into client conversations literally six months after joining, which felt quite special at, at the beginning of my career, I guess. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. We used to, this is going back some time into the 19. 80s and 1990s just as the investment banking or then corporate finance team at Rothschild was starting to specialize and I think one of the ways in which it was decided to sort of create a separate natural resources team was that the people in that team understood what a discounted cash flow was so they could do maths and modeling and the rest of us couldn't and went and did other sectors <laughs> all checked a bit <laughs> Really fascinating. And I guess, I guess before we go into Rothschild, I'd love to understand over, you know, almost four decades, how has investment banking changed? So investment banking in the sense of, uh, you know, strategic advisory, um, ECM, 
DCM, uh, it's a really good question. It's become much more intense, analytical, competitive. Of course, you go back to the 80s, this was in the days of typewriters and word processors were just starting, but you you couldn't afford to, you couldn't afford, you, you, there's no way that you would write and rewrite and redraft a complex document. There were no such things as PowerPoint slides. So I would say that there was a lot more application of intuition and perhaps judgment and considerably less analysis. And I suspect that the advice that one gave was the weaker for that, although the, the judgmental skills that you developed were probably quite good. Over time, the emphasis has grown enormously on detailed analysis. I think it's a moot point in many cases as to whether people properly digest that and know what to extract from the welter of information that exists. But if you took a kind of 40-year view, you'd have to say that the whole advisory industry has massively professionalized relative to where it was four decades ago. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And I guess as you move from intuition to science-based analysis, the advice is getting better. But one could also argue that the standard deviation of advice is getting more narrow, i.e. the field is getting slightly more commoditized. And I guess what's fascinating to me is, is that Rothschild is one of the very few companies that's been you know, a, a famous and also mysterious brand for over 200 years. And the, man, the company has managed to keep that brand relevant for all, all that time, whilst other areas of banking got commoditized. So what do you think is the secret sauce in terms of culture and, uh, and brand equity? The name of the Rothschild Bank has survived for a long time. I don't know, and it was massively relevant in large parts of the 19th century and you know, is clearly relevant today. I don't know how relevant it was in every decade in the intervals. You know, nor was it really the same business. I mean, it wasn't an advisory firm. It was more of an old-fashioned, you know, trading and merchant banking firm back, um, you know, a hundred years or, or so ago. So, I think the continuity actually is the family name and the family ownership, probably more than culture. The culture is is strong, and there's certainly a continuity now. But I'm I'm not sure it is traceable back hundreds of years. Um, what's the secret source? I mean, the secret source to longevity, a lot of it is, is luck. I mean, I remember that when I left university, I was, I think I was only offered three jobs. Uh, one was for what was then a probably more prestigious UK merchant bank called Hill Samuel, which disappeared shortly afterwards into the arms, I think, of either Lloyds Bank or the TSB. And then the only other job I was offered was Arthur Anderson, which in many ways was the <laughs> interesting uh, dynamic challenger in the accountancy field. And for whatever reason, I think it was my father who told me to take Rothschilds because you never know what happens, but at least people have heard of this. I think it was probably his advice. But that was just phenomenal luck because it's the one that was still around 10 and actually now 40 years, 40 years later. 
Um, we'll talk more about culture in a, in, in a moment, but I think one should never discount the role of, of, of accident in history. Yeah, that's a very powerful point, not to conflate luck and skill. And if you go back to the earlier years of your career, I guess I always found it fascinating in banking to see how in the early years of your career, at least today, it feels like it's about hard work, analytical mindset and commerciality. And then all of a sudden, your success is judged based on a different premise. And the premise is, you know, all of a sudden, you need to be good with clients, you need to be creative, you need to see opportunity where others don't see opportunity, you need to build relationships. How have you personally found that transition? And maybe back back in the days, it wasn't as pronounced as it is today, uh, where the first couple of years are a lot more about scientific analysis. It's a great question. Uh, personally, I found that tra transition incredibly difficult. You know, I think character-wise, I was naturally more inclined to sitting down, reading, writing, analyzing things than necessarily being out on the road, relationship building. You do get to a point in your career where you suddenly realize there's a danger that you're going to be one of the grown-ups. Uh, and therefore, you have to help lead in the development of business, which does require relationship building. But I, do, I think it's really important to recognize that, that there is no magic single route here. Um, people have very different routes into relationships, partly, I suppose, a reflection of the nature of, of, of clients. Clients are multifaceted and different characters get on with different characters in firms. Relationships are often team-based. I mean, I, 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 I know this is a big theme at Barclays as well. You really want relationships in investment banking to be institutionalized, which means that they're team-based and therefore there will be things that you might bring to a relationship, but it's not the whole package and you need to make sure that your team has got those in it that bring the rest. So I think one needs to be quite careful not to overemphasize the purely individual nature of, of, of relationship building. That's not really the way to build a firm. Yeah, it's a very powerful point and very similar to scaling a company. It's all about creating a robust operating model and systematically thinking about succession planning and so on. So, this, so that the sum of the parts is obviously bigger than um, the individual. And I'd love to understand how you moved from leading the development of business to then over time, I guess, leading the development of people departments, um, country offices, initiatives, new business areas. Uh, at what stage in your career did it dawn upon you that you had to, I guess, broaden your leadership capability even further? Well, again, Timo, I think, you know, I never underestimate the role of, of luck in all of this. I mean, there's... Um, I think it's in the weekend FT. They have a kind of one-page regular question interview with uh, people. And I think there's a question about people's career, which is something like hard work or talent. And I just think it's the wrong question because luck, and I've mentioned this already, 
comes in. Um, you know, I was lucky, if that's the right word. Not everybody wants to do this, of course, but I was lucky in that an opening appeared uh, in the late 1990s. A lot of my senior sort of friends and colleagues at Rothschild you know, stopped wanting to or being able to run things. And there was a need, uh, which wasn't filled just by me, but by a group of us to pick up pick up the various batons. And then I think that that coincided with a time in global investment banking where an increasing amount of business uh, was cross-border. People were starting to think about emerging markets. The, the, the BRICS expression was being, being invented. And as soon as you think internationally, muddling along with a, a domestic franchise, which frankly, you, you know, you can manage, you know, in a relatively amateurish way perfectly well, you are catapulted into a requirement for a more systematic approach to, to, to management, whether that's around structures or finances, talent, but you know, above all leading to cross-border cooperation and that doesn't just happen doesn't just happen through the goodness of people's hearts it needs some sort of management so I would say that the the opportunity arose just as the opportunity and the requirement got really quite big and you know I was lucky enough to be running I suppose the largest office uh, in the kind of Rothschild Federation and we, we, we took a lead in trying to pull things together internationally, which is, which is what then happened over the following you know, 10, or 15, 10 or 15 years. And what is it that only Nigel in that context could do? I mean, I guess in other words, um, you are obviously extremely intelligent, driven, humble, but there must be certain things that at this point in your career, only you could achieve and many other things other people would be better at. And, and this way you could solve for your weaknesses. How consciously did you solve for, I guess, what gives you most energy, but also what um, is the area uh, of most impact you had? Gosh, uh, that's a hell of a question. I, I'm not sure there's anything that I could do that others couldn't do. I was interested in doing it. I'm interested in talent management. I, you know, I think that most opportunities or challenges with people are soluble. You need to bring out the best in them. And, you know, I'm not a great believer in, in, in changing people in and out. I think the, the, the raw talent is normally, is normally there. So I was interested in it. Whereas I would say that um, many of my you know, more brilliant colleagues were primarily focused on developing our business and to be fair, developing the sector and product teams that did the business with them. I was interested uh, and remain interested in you know, how you manage an international firm. So I would say that it was interest rather than um, interest in the fact that somebody had to do it rather than having any particular, you know, particular talent for it. I think all you really need if you're in a, some kind of a leadership role in an international firm is to make sure you can do your best to have people work together and to feel that they are 
an important part of the decision-making processes themselves as well. So I want to just highlight one small point you mentioned, which is, you know, your principle of believing that the talent is there and it should be changed too much. Because when I joined Rothschild in 2008, many of my friends who worked in American investment banks literally saw six, seven rounds of layoffs, whereas I always felt like, you know, Rothschild didn't seem to let people go. Um, they believed in people and developing people. And no one was that concerned about being let go, maybe about earning less. But it definitely felt like a differentiating factor between Rothschild and other banks back then. Well, I've always thought that, you know, if your, your lodestar is long term, you know, whether it's you know, long term relationships with clients or quality long term advice that stand the test of time, it would be very difficult to stand in front of that client with a different team every 12 months. And you would start by having a long-term approach to your, your firm and to your, to your colleagues. Um, and if people are good enough and happy enough, there's no reason why you can't largely achieve that. You can top up talent. We, we were also lucky in that the, the period of Rothschild coming together coincided with a phenomenal growth in the market and the market opportunity and therefore you know i suspect that year in year out for the best part of 10 or 15 years we added headcount everywhere so we weren't in that kind of difficult world of either static revenues or even worse declining revenues where because you feel you need to introduce some new talent you have to lose people just to make the numbers work so again there was an element of Uh, uh, of, of luck about it but I think the key point is if you've got great people and you can develop them that's a, um, a fantastic message to to clients and you get continuity of quality advice if um, if companies are looked after by the same people for a for um, for a long period of time yeah it's very powerful And just on the topic of talent management I guess ultimately banking is the business of human capital and i guess the question is how do you think about creating the right conditions for people to be at their best how do you unlock their potential at scale you mentioned development as a as a focus how did you think about creating these conditions i think the key thing is trust i mean i think you have to have a high degree of trust between those running the business and those in it between different countries between seniors and juniors you know the seniors trusting the juniors to do the work properly juniors trusting seniors to look after them develop them give them time give them give them credit give them support i think that that's probably the most important characteristic that you need and clearly lots there's lots of things that go into developing an atmosphere of kind of internal confidence in, in, in one another. I mean, I see it at, at Barclays where I, um, in, in, actually I was surprised given that the big banks have often had this reputation from the outside of being you know, rather different from the culture you described at, at Rothschild. But in fact, there is an extraordinary degree of inter and intra-office collegiality. People are 
are very nice and they have a high degree of confidence that they will be supported by colleagues. And that makes it so much easier to develop the kind of culture that you've been describing. And just focusing a bit more on you as a CEO, uh, and you've always obviously seen many, many CEOs operate. What do you think is the difference between a high-performance CEO and a low-performance CEO? And obviously, it's a very simplistic question, and the context, the circumstances, the industry matter greatly. But I just wonder if you can identify attributes um, or traits of commonality. The best definition I've ever heard of leadership came from one of my colleagues who, who said that you know that you're a leader if you turn around and you can see that people are following you. And it's a really good general description. Now, people might be following you because you're brilliant and strategic, because you're charismatic, because you are incredibly hardworking, because you're on top of all of the operational detail that is necessary. People, there are different reasons why people are great leaders and what they are held up to be leaders for. But I think the common ingredient is that people want to follow them and work with them. And that plays straight back to what we've already been talking about. There's no such thing as a, you know, a great businessman or a great businesswoman on their own. They may be outstanding, but they're always outstanding in part because they have built and know how to work with and use a great team. And I think that you know, if you go through companies that have done very well for long periods of time and also look at companies that have had disasters, you can very often put it down to the quality of the teamwork around the leader at the top of the firm. Very powerful point. And recently, you joined Barclays as the group chair. I guess on day one, you had an activist investor in the shareholder base. And how did you feel about learning, or I guess switching from being an advisor for such a long time, advising boards under such circumstances, to then actually being on the board yourself? <laughs> That's a good question, because I, I was sort of doing a double transformation from being, I probably spent half my time in my previous existence as an advisor and half running the firm. And I was suddenly put in this or came to this position where, you know, I was no longer actually responsible for doing any real work, which was quite nice. But I couldn't hide behind being an advisor because you actually as a board do have to make decisions. So it was quite a shift in mindset. The fact that there was... Uh, two things helped enormously. The first is that, and I didn't know them before, but there is an absolutely fantastic group of human beings that run Barclays and not just professionally fantastic. And I think the city generally acknowledges they've done a great job, but also at a human level, decent people to work with, enjoyable people to work with, welcoming and open. The sort of people you can have I think this is another good def definition of teamwork. You can disagree with without falling out. So that helped enormously. And funnily enough, having some of the challenges that we've had over my first year or two also helped. We, you know, we've had um, to pick two, um, the activist, and then we have had a complete reset on our environmental agenda. 
I think in a way that, Timo, that's made it easier than if there hadn't been targets to hit and, you know, things to worry about because it's provided a real focus for what you've got to do um, as a collection of board individuals or me as the as the chair. And as soon as you're thrown into a real life problem, you find that you're not worrying anymore about how I make the transition from, from this to that. You're just getting on with what you know has got to be your job. Yeah, I can only imagine. But yeah, it um, makes perfect sense intuitively. And you've obviously advised so many boards and now you are a chair of one of the biggest UK companies. What kind of have you learned about good boards, bad boards? What are your principles when it comes to boards? Again, I don't think there's a, I wish there were a, a, a magic answer. I mean, people are brilliant. You know, most people are nice, hardworking. And by the time you get to being on or a candidate to be on the board of an organization like Barclays, you know, the likelihood is that you've got a huge amount to offer one way or another. So talent is never a problem. There are lots of brilliant and, you know, hopefully most of them are pleasant uh, as well, brilliant, pleasant people around. The challenge, the job, is to provide structure and a framework in which you can get the best out of people. And, you know, in those circumstances, uh, working as a team, listening, you know, listening is a massively underrated human skill. And I would say, you know, it's not one that all bankers um, understand. You know, you need to come out of a meeting that you've been in with clients where the client's done most of the talking, not where you've done most of the most of the talking. And it's the same really with, with, a, with a board. If you want to get the best out of what's almost bound to be a very talented group of people, you have to have provided the, the structure and the atmosphere. And by structure, I mean a well-constructed board agenda that focuses on the strategic issues that a company faces. And in my view, that largely means focusing on the 95% uh, or focusing 95% of your time on things that either aren't going right or which are opportunities you've not yet tapped into or, or done well. It doesn't mean spending an inordinate amount of time on things that are going, going well. And one thing we've We, 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 we do at Barclays very thoughtfully and the management team takes the lead on this is we think pretty openly about what our big issues are and make sure we give them en enough time. It sounds sort of Mickey Mouse and obvious, but you'd be surprised how much time can be wasted on, on the irrelevant. And then, it, then there's the atmosphere. Does everybody feel they can talk? Does everybody feel that they are listened to? Do you conclude topics with a reasonably clear framework for future action or debate or, or follow-up? Um, and are you able to admit when you're not sure of the decision and you'll, you'll come back to it? So I think you know, a good chair and a good board should operate with the right structure and the right atmosphere. And if you get those two things right, it's not that difficult. No, really great points. Um... I've been on five boards. Um, they're all smaller boards than Barclays, but I definitely have seen what you just described in the best boards and it lacked in the boards that probably weren't yet at a high-performing level. 
And how do you see the difference between the chair and the CEO? To be clear, this is, this is a question that will mean different things, Timo, in different countries, because the roles are strangely very, very different, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic or on the other side of uh, the English Channel. It can be quite different on the other side of the, of the channel. But in, in the UK, um, you know, the chief executive and his or her executive committee run the company. And one of the things you've got to remember if you're a board member, even if you were once chief executive yourself, it is, you know, where you are meant to be adding value is largely around strategic matters. And you must then leave the management team the freedom to go and implement things properly. Now, if there are problems or or failings clearly the board would, would would get involved but one ought to have a reasonably clear idea of the uh, of, of the distinction between uh, strategic guidance and you know operational micromanagement which is certainly not the job of, of a board boards do lots of other lots of other things as well you know it's a collection of great experience i think it's good if some people on a board have either been chief executives or run divisions and, and, and activities, but not everybody has to, to do that. You want to have a board that in as far as is possible, and you know, capitalism doesn't necessarily make this easy, but uh, you are as representative as you can be of the, the societies that you serve. You certainly got to be very thoughtful about, um, about those. I think great boards also have to look not just to the strategic or the management of the present, but they do have a, a role holding the crystal ball and thinking about how the future is going to shape things. And their boards often have more time and perhaps more intellectual bandwidth uh, because they're not necessarily in the, in, in the detail of running things. And thinking about how the world in which you operate is going to evolve is a very important is a very important topic. So these are some of the, you know, some of the distinctions. But the main one is remember you're not executive. The the the, the, the management have got the executive job. Switching the topic slightly, it feels like Barclays is being commoditized in certain areas, and then there's lots of growth in other areas. And it, it feels like from the outside, there's a fierce attack from digital players. If you fast forward by 10 years and you play crystal ball slightly, how could the landscape in banking change? And I guess, what's the role of digital then? So look, digital is clearly transformative. Um, I think that the winners in a lot of the digital spaces will be the big banks. Uh, they have the customer relationships, they have the brand, they have the trust. And in many areas, they're also fully aware of what it means to be in a regulated activity. Now, there are parts of the banking landscape which are easier to break into if you are a, a young, dynamic fintech company. That's a more than appropriate challenge to the business model of the so-called incumbents. And I suspect there are spaces that either didn't exist 
10 years ago or which will see you know a fair degree of success for relatively younger companies but once you get into the heart of banking you know which remember is all about being uh, custodians of people's money these organizations have to be run incredibly prudently they have to be fantastically resilient both operationally and financially and they're regulated and a world will come where regulators regulate activities and not just entities today there is a slight difference in that you could be engaged in the same activity as a bank but you are much less likely much less heavily regulated because you're not actually a bank that's going to have to change because regulation is designed to protect you know organizations and and, and customers depending on the services that are provided not just because of the legal definition of the of, of the enterprise that owns the activity so what you've got timo is the so-called old world incumbents the banks busy changing their business models in many ways you know if you use if you're a Barclays customer I'd encourage you to be a Barclays customer the I Barclays am Barclays. you're delighted to hear I am I'm great well the Barclays mobile banking app is out of this world it generally I, I agree it's very good it's not as colorful as some but it's better and it works brilliantly and it works resiliently and you know that's some you know Barclays has a deep history and culture actually of being very tech focused i think the first atm in britain was a was a was a barclays atm so barclays has a history of em embracing technology but clearly it's easier sometimes to develop mobile apps if you start with a blank sheet of paper than if you start with millions of customers and exist an existing wiring system but we have to get there and we will get there because if we and we are there already with the mobile banking app um, you're seeing the same challenges and responses in, for instance, the markets and the, and, and the trading businesses. So I think the most digitally savvy and successful organisations in a lot of the banking spheres will continue to be the major banks. But that isn't to say that there isn't a, a place for new entrants, particularly in niches. Not These are often quite big niches, niches that are new areas of business. Yeah, and as you, as you said, I mean, I on a personal level, I tried all the challenger banks, and I have to say, I've never switched away from Barclays because, as you said, the Barclays app is actually fantastic, and I've been a customer for twelve years and never felt a necessity to get a colorful card. So it's it's clearly worked quite well. By the way, Timo, I should interrupt you. You can. I don't know whether other banks do this, but you can send off to Barclays and get your standard debit card reissued with for instance i have a picture of my kids on it which is much nicer than having uh, <laughs> a, a multicolored card so um i would encourage you to explore the pictorial department of um, the mobile bank <laughs> i will absolutely do so and, and and try it um sounds fantastic and just as a final question when you look at today's market, and I don't want to specifically talk about today's market, but I guess if you look at the QE, the quantitative easing, the low interest rates that have flooded the markets today, to me at least as an entrepreneur, 
it feels like there are 10 times more investors who are proactively approaching us as a company versus only a couple of years ago, or maybe even 30 times more investors. And we have seen asset prices go up and multiples are up, but the number of good assets hasn't really changed. And to what extent and when should we expect some kind of correction? And I'm not asking you to play crystal ball too much um, when it comes to the markets, but I'm fascinated to hear how you think about the market from a framework perspective. Good question. I do not discount, I'm sure you don't, that one of the reasons why you have 30 times as many approaches as in the past is that you run not just a phenomenally successful company but you and your colleagues have a very good reputation externally as great people and therefore a very large reason why so many people are approaching you is that they would love to work with and invest in such a great company run by such a great great team so don't rule don't don't i'm sure you don't but don't rule that out as a a major explanation for the for the interest in, in in the company the in terms of the sort of macroeconomic question that you're asking i mean i think it's it's a sort of how long is a piece of string question around low interest rates i'm not sure that we will for a long long time see a return to you know much higher very very much higher rates of interest and therefore we're probably in a period of a lower cost of capital for a longer period of time than any of us would have predicted five or five or six years ago. And after all, nothing written down in stone dictates that the you know the right level of interest rates should be X or should be should be Y. And while rates are low, you know values for asset classes that generate superior returns are going to remain fairly high. Um, I think that will adjust over time and certainly adjust with the return of a bit of a bit of inflation. But I don't I don't see a catastrophic collapsing of the bubble. Banks are in an interesting position because um, obviously low interest rates and a relatively flat yield curve does not make it easy for mm. banks to you know, who tend to sort of um, borrow short and lend long doesn't make it as easy to make money as it used to be in the past. But again, that's something that powers the transformation in the in the banking business business model. You know, I feel uh, that um, we shouldn't expect Armageddon around the corner, although I that some kind of adjustment will come. But if, and I, you know, I wouldn't if I were in the shoes of a, uh, you know, dynamic, exciting, rapidly growing company. I think it's a great opportunity if you need to raise capital, but I wouldn't necessarily run my business differently in order to accelerate things to get into the capital markets, you know, one month rather than six months later. I, I'm not sure that that's the right way to, I think you should you know, run your business as you think right rather than being driven by mood swings in the capital markets. Yeah, we're trying to take a very, very long time horizon and really put the customer first and think deeply about the capabilities we need to build over the next three to five years to then win in the next five to 10 years 
And obviously, we're paying attention to short-term fluctuations in cost of capital, as you said. But it's a very, very uh, secondary consideration. It's all about the long term um, and the intrinsic value we build. And I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And you know, market timing doesn't work in investing, and it doesn't really work in terms of capital raising. I I think that you won't go far wrong over a career by putting long term commitment to customers and colleagues first, which is certainly what we try and do at. Barclays and from everything I know about you and you know your business is exactly what you you do as well we, we are absolutely trying and you've been incredibly kind and generous and thank you so much Nigel for your time and your openness um, and generosity I've really tremendously appreciated the session thank you not at all pleasure Timo thank you very much